This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for weekly research insights as investors respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is September 24th, 2020. This week, it's Climate Week here in New York City, one of two major annual gatherings of what you might call the climate community. In the midst of the pandemic, it can be all too easy to push aside concerns about climate change, but unfortunately, the reminders are all too real. Fires raging on the west coast of the U.S., stronger, more frequent storms around the globe, and let's not forget the fires in Australia earlier this year. Just a few examples of the very serious implications. On this special, somewhat longer episode of Perspectives, We'll explore where the world stands in terms of our efforts to address climate change, and of course, the effect on investors of every stripe as they look to measure the risks and the opportunities, evaluate and maybe reevaluate specific investments, and make difficult decisions as they manage portfolios. But before we get there, let's take a step back and get a broader view. It started around uh, 200 years ago when uh, famous scientists like Fourier, uh, Tyndall, and Arrhenius basically found the greenhouse gas effect. Okay, maybe not that far back. That was the voice of Oliver Marchand, and he is... I am Global Head of ESG Research and Development at MSCI. I am a computer scientist and meteorologist by training, and I develop financial models related to ESG at MSCI. We asked Oliver to help us establish a baseline. Where are we in 2020? Let me answer that question on multiple fronts. So where are we on the science of climate change? I think on the science, the best thing that speaks for itself is the latest report. It's a special report by the IPCC. That's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. On the 1.5 degree scenario. And... The main result of that report is that this target of limiting warming to a maximum of 1.5 degrees is still possible, but would require deep emission reductions and rapid, far-reaching and unprecedented changes in all aspects of society. So it's a very challenging goal, but it's still possible. In society, I think we've seen a huge shift, specifically before COVID, the Fridays for Future movement really was on top of the news cycle, you know, almost every day. And um, I think it's fair to say that the youth speaking for itself probably has a more fundamental psychological effect than maybe some of the very important scientific findings. And we see specifically now that Climate Week is going on, we also have a social movement. All of this has had an effect on industry. There are oil companies phasing out their main business model, and some major food and car companies making announcements that they'll be net zero carbon by the year 2050. Which brings us back to investors. I think what's changed in recent history is the whole issue of climate change has kind of risen up the political agenda and and that of society. And it's really reaching the end investors at a multi-asset class portfolio level. That's... Will Robson. I'm Global Head of Real Estate Solutions Research at MSCI. And although that's a bit of a mouthful, um, what it basically means is I write, along with my team, 
a lot of applied research helping clients to kind of use our data and our tools and risk models to understand what's going on in real estate markets and help them work out how best to analyze real estate in the context of their broader portfolios. It's kind of coming on down from on high that people want to understand their exposure to climate risk across the whole of their portfolios and really integrate the assessment of that risk in everything that they do. It's the aggregation of that information in a way that is really going to guide capital and direct it to areas that are more sustainable uh, than less sustainable in a kind of systematic way. I think it's all about how do we measure climate change risk and impact and how is the relationship between these measurements and potential regulation. And and this this kind of, uh, let's say, conversion to, I would call it mainstreaming, I think that's that's actually what's happening. And I'm sure, you know, it's, it's the same with other industry standards. In the beginning, each mobile phone had a different plug and uh, now things are slowly converging to USB-C. And I think the same thing is happening in climate. When we started Carbon Delta and talked about our main concepts, climate value risk and warming potential, most you know, didn't really know what to expect. And now these terms and these concepts are almost mainstream. People know exactly what that is and that they need it as an investment tool. This seems like a good spot. It's important to note here a point that Oliver made several times. Basically, that due to what was, and still is, a necessary focus on COVID, the world has lost a year it really couldn't afford to lose on climate change. That, however, has not stopped investors from trying to understand the situation and take action. We're still having lots of conversation with clients and trying to help them understand climate risk because it very is, it's very much still at the top of their agenda uh, and I've been really surprised at how much time and effort they're, they're putting on this at the moment. I would say that currently what we see is a strong pressure from our clients to make our analysis available for all asset classes. When I talk to people that are in contact with clients, product people, coverage people, it's a very uh, similar demand from all of them let's cover all asset classes because major banks or major asset managers are usually cover many, many different types of uh, asset classes. So I think that is the ultimate goal. You're trying to understand these kind of complex um, climate risks and how they're going to impact real estate or any investments, um, cash flows and, and values uh, so that you can make a financial assessment of the risk and incorporate it kind of seamlessly into the rest of your investment decision making. We try and look at all these different risks and we split them between those that are physical risks like hurricanes or tropical cyclones. When they come in, they impact huge swathes of land and they might affect hundreds or thousands of properties uh, with uh, damage, wind damage, for example. Whereas Coastal flooding, which you often get when a hurricane makes landfall, it's over a, a smaller area than, than the entire hurricane. But the, the the properties that get hit get hit really hard because flooding is very sort of costly uh, damage. 
but the the kind of local topography and where the 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 land level lies um means that even in quite small areas there can be some buildings that are completely destroyed and and others that uh have quite mild damage it's all about looking at the geospatial distribution of the business of a company and looking at the impact that the different hazards as we call them have on the business model but it's a very important element uh, of climate change we have just seen these examples with the wildfires in on the west coast of the US or the uh, you know a reoccurring hurricane season in the southeast of the United States each year we look at those things uh, we try to model over the coming years, um, how weather patterns are going to change, uh, whether those risks are going to become more frequent or less frequent, and how intense they are. And to do so, one of the tools they use, which Oliver mentioned earlier, is a model called climate value at risk. We're trying to think about climate change um, and the risk around that, but apply it to financial modeling, hence the, the value at risk part of it. We estimate the, the financial costs associated with with those events and then discount those costs back to today's value and think about those costs the present value of those costs in relation to the value of the the asset today and that means that you're taking the climate risk putting a financial dollars and cents around those costs and then thinking about those costs relative to the value of the asset um so some some assets can absorb the same dollar costs much more easily because they're much more valuable assets. So if you think about uh, uh, an office tower in the middle of uh, Manhattan, the value per square foot of that building is very high compared to an industrial unit in the Midwest, for example. They could be exposed to the same hurricane risk and the same damage function, same costs, but the the impact on the, the office in Manhattan is much uh, less material than it is for the, the industrial asset in the Midwest. Another consideration when it comes to climate change is something called transition risk. It has to do with the fact that companies are going to have to adapt as we transition to a carbon-free world. Risk, however, doesn't always imply something negative. It also can create opportunity. Asset managers are in a different position, and I think they much more think about the opportunity side Each crisis is an opportunity at the same time. And I would argue the low-carbon transition is the biggest business opportunity ever. And I think they're much more interested in understanding this uh, opportunity aspect of climate change. At least half of the economy is affected by climate change. And what I mean is that these parts of the economy need to either change the production of their products, or they need to change their products, or they need to change the supply for their products. The whole electricity grid needs to change. Products, you know, that are very carbon intensive, like aluminum, steel, glass, paper, they they all need to transition over to low carbon variations of that product. And that transition needs investments in new markets And that's why I'm saying it's the biggest investment opportunity, because there will be uh, winners and losers along this transition. And if, as an investor, you're good at identifying the winners, it's massive opportunity. And we're thinking about 
what needs to be done in terms of taking carbon out of uh, carbon emissions out of the system, and then what the costs, what the carbon price around that effort is, and then thinking about that in, in relation to the value of the asset. So you may have some assets that are already very efficient and um, you don't need to take too much carbon out of those because they're already very low uh, low emission buildings versus other assets that could be quite dirty buildings and, and not very efficient and sitting in a country with, with high uh, commitments to carbon emission reductions and therefore the costs, the amount of carbon that, that you're going to need to take out of the building and the cost associated with that is going to be quite high. And it's about bringing all those different aspects together into one metric that is in dollars and cents and return space so that it can think about it in an investment context. While metrics like climate VAR are important across asset classes, they can be especially valuable for real estate investors who have to look building by building, particularly when evaluating transition risk. Seemingly small factors can have a very large impact. That's really driven by the the carbon intensity of those buildings, the emissions intensity. That can be driven by the format, the, the type of building, but also the type of tenants that uh, occupy them. So, um, so office buildings are occupied a lot of the day, um, and they they're generally air conditioned, lots of glass in them, um, so that they can um, they can be quite energy intensive. You have big shopping centres that have huge areas to, to cool or heat, depending on where you are, uh, and large kind of common areas. So the, the the nature of the emissions data can vary quite kind of systematically across different uh, property types. And in our modelling, we always try to get the, the emissions data of the specific building, the actual emissions data that reflects the actual building, because some can be more efficient than others. But in the absence of that data, uh, we use proxy information and, and you can see the, the, the averages do vary by property type. Will's point about data is an important one to note. Even as investors' adoption of ESG has accelerated during the pandemic, that's a theme we've come back to time and again on the program, the availability of data and the consistency of how it's reported and when, that still has a way to go. And this scarcity of data has thrown up some major roadblocks when trying to account for an important piece of the puzzle known as Scope 3 emissions. But to understand Scope 3 emissions, we first need to talk about Scope 1 and 2. So Scope 1 and 2 emissions are very easy to explain. A Scope 1 emission is an emission that really comes out of the exhaust pipe of the operations of a company. So that would be a coal-fired power plant, or it would actually be a plane that a uh, an airline operates. Scope two emissions are emissions which are related to power that a company uses. Let's say an aluminum factor uses an enormous amount of power, and that power is generated causing emissions, then that adds to the scope two footprint. Okay, following so far. And anything else really, for example, when a car company sells a car, and then the consumer drives that car and it produces emissions, that's being considered the scope three footprint of a car company. But it's not only the emissions from the products that a company sells, it's actually 15 different so-called categories, um, which also include things like the emissions related to the stuff that companies buy or the travel of the employees or 
the emissions caused by waste treatment, things like that. But the very important scope three emissions, because they can also have impact on the, obviously the sustainability of a company, but more importantly also, it's part of the risk management that we need to look at. Because if car companies can't sell combustion engine cars anymore, or if potentially it's going to be very expensive for the user to buy biofuels or things like that, then that's going to have an effect on the bottom line of companies. That's why it's extremely important, especially for some sectors like the automobile sector, to look at scope three emissions. So if unlike scope one and scope two emissions, scope three emissions are actually 15 different categories, that means it's almost like... You have to build 15 models. So that's definitely a complexity that is problematic. It's also problematic that the uh, level of disclosure by companies is much lower for scope three data than it is for scope one and two data. And that there are many ways of environmental accounting, which makes the data that we have very inhomogeneous. So that's why it took us such a long time to build a comprehensive scope three model that models 9,000 issuers. And it's really for the first time, I think, um, in the history of financial climate data that we're able to look at data for such a large universe of companies, and that just opens up a lot of opportunities. It opens up opportunities to use that scope three data for value at risk models. And it also, for the first time, I think enables investors to remove double counting that's ingrained in in scope three accounting. Sorry, double counting? Well, the, the, the best way to explain the double counting issue with scope three emissions is to look at an oil company and a car company. So an oil company has scope three emissions through the oil that they sell. But those are exactly the same emissions of the scope three emissions of a car company that actually is used on the road and uses exactly that same oil. So if you add up all scope three emissions, you know, you get something like four to five times the global emissions. Now, the big problem is if you don't remove that double counting, you can't do anything in terms of, you know, applying a carbon price or things like that, or looking at emission intensity compared to scope one emission intensity. And that's just a statistical problem. And due to the fact that we were able to cover so many issuers, we can at least now do a first attempt at removing this double counting. It wasn't possible before because there just wasn't enough data. Availability of data, incorporating new types of risks, and distractions by other global events such as COVID, clearly there are obstacles to overcome in terms of the global fight against climate change, as well as the investment industry's ability to understand it and incorporate it fully into their process. But the good news is that pressure is building from many directions, and the financial industry, as well as industry in general, appears to be actively working toward understanding the risks, as well as identifying the opportunities. It's encouraging to see so much interest in in measuring the problem properly, 
we've had a lot of activity here and there, um, but I think we're at kind of the beginning of a wave of change where it becomes much more sort of systematic and properly integrated into the investment process. The industry is moving towards some very practical tools and offerings. And I think it is both. It is necessary in terms of fiduciary duty to look at climate change risks. And it's a great business opportunity. But I think at the same time, it's morally imperative to look at climate change risks. And I think what is great is that these two things are now converging. That's all for this week. Our thanks to Oliver and Will, and to all of you for joining us for this special episode of Perspectives. Join us next week when we'll speak with ARK Invest's Tasha Keeney about the growth of autonomous tech. Remember, it takes just a moment to subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or share with a friend. Until next week, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.